following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. Lord, we're so uh, grateful to be together today. We thank you for giving us this day each and every week to set apart and uh, to turn all of our thoughts and all of our efforts toward the Lord Jesus Christ. We are grateful for the Lord's day and we pray, Lord, that you help us to use it in a way that is first and foremost glorifying to you and uh, that is good for our souls and for the strength of your church. And so we pray for your help today. We are grateful for the opportunity to be able to study your word. We thank you for the gift of worship. We thank you for the ordinances of the church that we will observe today and the great blessing of fellowship. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to, uh, to approach your word with wisdom and clarity, uh, that we would find much joy in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're thankful for the blessings that you have shown us over the past week, and we pray, Lord, that you continue to watch over us and help us to walk in faithfulness and in truth. We pray for all of our Sunday school classes this morning. Lord, we ask that you would help each of the teachers uh, to teach with wisdom and patience and kindness toward our, our children, our young people. We pray, Lord, that you would be working in their hearts. And we ask, Lord, that you might be pleased to do a great work in each of them to bring them to new life in the Lord Jesus Christ. So help us now, Lord, as we come to this great book of your word that we could have a greater understanding and uh, clarity in what for many seems to be confusing and challenging. And we pray you would do this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, the book of Revelation. So uh, for those who are regular attendees of Sunday school, you know from time to time we do uh, sort of overviews of various uh, books of the Bible, working through each of them, and we've come to the end of the New Testament, and the other elders said, what should we throw on the newest elder in our church? How about the most difficult book of the entire Bible? So (laughs) here we are, Revelation. Um, But it's exciting, and uh, there's there's a lot that we could uh, talk about, and unfortunately, uh, we don't have time to go into all of it, um, but uh, hopefully get some uh, some key thoughts for you as you uh, go to study this great book on on your own. So, so I was thinking about this. I was reflecting on um, in my life. I've had the privilege of visiting uh, 34 different countries at this point in my lifetime. And one of the things that is uh, always the case when you go to a new country is that you have to know something if you at least want to interact with the people about their culture and their language to some extent, although I've never been to a country where I haven't found people who speak English, so we have a leg up with our language. But you don't want to go into a country and start meeting people and not know anything of their customs because they can be very different uh, than our own. You could end up doing something that's terribly offensive Um, or confusing to those that you are talking to. And uh, if you're going to be in a place for a long time, it's a good idea to try to learn the language so that you can communicate more efficiently. 
Well, as we come to the book of Revelation, there is a sense in which we need to learn the culture and the language of this book. It's not something we should just jump into like any other book of the Bible because there are some uh, unique elements to it uh, that if we are to just approach it in the same way we would one of Paul's letters, for example, uh, we are going to come uh, to some challenges uh, that that way of interpretation is not going to work. And so, you know, I think... uh, there is an element of revelation that most of us enjoy for the same reason that perhaps you would uh, enjoy reading a fiction book or watching a movie. Uh, You are entering into a strange world that is very dissimilar from our own. And uh, whenever anyone tells me they don't like to read fiction, um, I just... It's uh, me telling them that they're missing out on something great. The Lord has uh, designed us and has even written into his his word uh, some some sort of fantastical things uh, that we don't uh, don't necessarily understand from our natural world. And so it's important for us uh, to understand that there's a tremendous blessing and many lessons to be learned as we read through Revelation, but in some ways, and I want you to understand how I'm saying this, in some ways uh, we have to, like you approach something like a movie, for example, there's a sense in which we suspend the reality in which we live in the natural world in order to interact with this different culture and this different language and the different customs. So for example, in the book of Revelation, animals are very significant. They talk. They have power. Colors and numbers and patterns all play a very significant role in the book of Revelation. Now all of this is intended to help you to see the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ all the more clearly through imaginative symbols. Now, when I use this language, I'm not suggesting that Revelation is fiction in any way. What I am saying is it's a world very different from our own. And so those same kinds of principles that we use uh, to read something like Revelation, we would want to bring into our interpretation. So I want to help us to think through some of what that is. I like how Sinclair Ferguson described it. He said that Revelation is a picture book of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we're getting pictures, we're getting images, we're getting symbols as we work through this. And as we see the significance of the symbols, we begin to understand the passages. So you think, uh, for example, if you see... uh, now, forgive me here, I'm not, a, I'm not a football person in the least bit, but I know a little bit. So, if you see a picture of a dolphin and a lion, you're not thinking that a dolphin is about to fight a lion, right? You see that these pictures, they, they are representative of something. And they're representative of, of their teams. And so, the dolphins are going to play the lions. Is that Detroit? Yes. <laughs> so you have these representations, right? You have, you have an image. It's an animal, and it's p- 
presenting something. This isn't a, a, a literal uh, battle royale between these two animals that otherwise have nothing to do with one another, but they're representing the teams. And behind those teams, you have, uh, you have players, you have representatives of that team, and you have uh, crazy fans and untold amounts of money, and uh, for some, a weird form of worship. So uh, as you... As you think about symbols, we need to think about the fact that they represent something uh, that goes beyond what that symbol itself is. Now, there are many, many different things that matter as we approach the book of Revelation. As I mentioned, we can't possibly spend our time going through all of them because we don't have that kind of time. But I, I, want, I would want to be fair in presenting the fact that there are many different ideas that people have about this book. So instead of going through all the different views and ideas, I think it is best that we might spend our time giving us some thoughts on how to read Revelation instead of parsing out all of the differences. And so this is uh, more to help you, as you approach this book, to think through how you can read it uh, more efficiently and effectively. So to begin with is the principle For most of the Bible, as we come to the text, we take what is written at face value unless there's a good reason to do otherwise. And so when, for example, I know my son's class this morning, they're talking about the fifth commandment. I want my children to read the fifth commandment and to take that at face value. Uh, it, It is God's law. It is very direct and it is very clear. There's no reason to do otherwise. Revelation, on the other hand, is almost reversed in terms of that principle unless we end up with some very impossible and some very strange conclusions. Again, we're dealing with symbology, we're dealing with imagery, we're dealing with pictures. And so to take a very strict literal face reading of this book is going to lead us in a direction I do not believe the Lord intended. Now, of course, many people are fascinated by John's revelation. They're obsessed with it and will quickly tell you everything that they think it means. And throughout history, especially over the last hundred years, you've gotten all sorts of uh, ideas that maybe the locusts in Revelation represent Russian tanks or Apache helicopters. Uh, We have uh, ideas about implanted microchips Uh, You know, when people were getting their COVID vaccines, uh, those who thought uh, this was in the Bible really started to spin up. Um, They want to attribute various uh, locations and people groups we see in the book of Revelation to China or Russia or North Korea. And so uh, we have to come to this book of the Bible with some humility But because of that, there are others who are scared and intimidated. They're unsure of what they're reading or how to read it. And so oftentimes I find that Christians sort of avoid the book of Revelation altogether. So we don't need to be scared. We don't need to be intimidated. But we also need to realize the context and the purpose for the writing of this book. What is the purpose? Well, the book of Revelation is intended for those who needed to be warned of their spiritual condition, and they needed to be encouraged in the face of difficulty 
and darkness. And so if you keep this in mind as you read the book of Revelation, it's very helpful. We're not coming to an intricate word problem or a puzzle or a Mensa exam. This is not an obscure manual to all of the events of the end times for us to try and decipher. So we read our Bibles in one hand with the newspaper in the other, trying to draw all uh, the lines and figure out all the connections. The, the book was not written with the intention of us sitting down like we're reading elaborate clues to a difficult problem that needs to be solved and figured out and the identity of every symbol needs to be compared to modern day people and places and things. That is not at all what God has intended. So a good question for you to ask yourself as you're reading through the book of Revelation is this. What relevance would this have to persecuted Christians in the first century church. If the intention of the book is for us uh, to see that God wanted to warn people of their spiritual condition and to encourage those in difficulty and darkness, we have to ask that question. What relevance would this have to those who are reading this for the first time in the first century church uh, as they were being persecuted? Now, of course, again, there are many strange things, but we cannot disassociate the original initial audience and the culture and the language. God did not give this to Christians 2,000 years ago to keep them confused and guessing and assuming today is the day that all of this comes to pass based on one's interpretation because the economy is crashing or because people are getting their 43rd booster shot or Russia is uh, on its way in, in, in the attack and China's helping them out and all of these sorts of ideas that people uh, tie to this. So I hope we can agree at least that first century Christians weren't reading the book of Revelation, with the understanding that it was pointing to tanks and helicopters and microchips and multinational powers. Hopefully we can put that out of our minds and try to think about this in the culture and the time and the language in which it was written. For John and his contemporaries, this was, as John says it is, a revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. The entire aim of what is happening is what we see in verse 17. This is John saying, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. He was struck with absolute amazement and he was moved to the ground by the awesome power and glory and magnificence of the Lord Jesus Christ. It led to worship. And so as we read the book of Revelation, at the end of the day, if it doesn't lead us to worship, then we're reading it wrong. If it leads to fear or to panic or to great confusion, then we're not understanding it rightly. It's fascinating to me that in the book of Revelation, there are 35 different names and titles that are given to the Lord Jesus. So it's clearly about him more than anything else. And if you lose Jesus in your reading of this book, then you've lost the main point. Now, we actually get the bulk of what 
I think we need to know as we work through uh, this book in the first five verses uh, of chapter one. So and look at those together. John writes this, the revelation of Jesus Christ, or in the original, it just begins with revelation. So revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. So there's several, quite a few things we learn here in these first uh, five verses about this book. The first is that this is a revelation. It's a revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a book about the Lord Jesus Christ, just as we could say about the entire Bible. But this is different in nature. Revelation is of the literary genre that we call apocalyptic. Now, many people assume that apocalyptic only means that this entire book is about the absolute end of all things as we know it, and uh, we're, we're going to live in a world that's similar to what we see in all the movies that are sort of apocalyptic in nature, where we're all dressed like steampunk people running around shooting each other with laser beams. But that's, that's not what apocalyptic uh, generally means. Apocalyptic simply means revelation. It is an unveiling or an unfolding of things not previously known and which could be known apart from that unveiling. So it's, it's revealing something to us. It's a revelation. And so uh, revelation really fits into the genre of the Old Testament prophetic and apocalyptic works, especially books like Daniel and Ezekiel and Zechariah, which... The writer is given to the heavenly, behind-the-scenes perspective of earthly events. And so that's one thing for us to think about. As we're entering into this world, we're entering into a behind-the-scenes look. We are entering into the, uh, the picture world of the heavenly realm as John has seen it and is able to explain it. Uh, and we are seeing something that we don't see with our human eyes living on this earth. So this revelation was revealed to John. People want to argue about that. I don't know why it says right there in the text multiple times that it was revealed to John. Now John was, he tells us later in this chapter, that he was, uh, this is while he was on the island of Patmos, where he was, of course, uh, sent, uh, and uh, where he eventually died in isolation uh, because of his preaching of the Lord Jesus. So again, this revelation about the Lord Jesus Christ intended for persecuted 
abused, discouraged Christians, many of them on the verge of walking away altogether. So if this is unveiling, and God did so in a way that was like some complex problem to solve, like we're all supposed to be world-class detectives or something, we don't even understand what a revelation is. The idea is not to unveil something so that you're, you're more confused or more discouraged, but rather so that you uh, would have clarity and encouragement. And so we have to come to the book with that in mind. God did not intend for us to come to this and to walk away saying, well, I thought I knew a few things and now I know and understand nothing, but rather quite the opposite. Interesting, uh, among Uh, the Puritans especially, Revelation was one of the most preached books of the Bible along with the Song of Solomon, Uh, two books that you hear very few sermons from today, uh, at least in Reformed churches. And so we have a revelation of the Lord Jesus. Second John tells us that it's a vision. Notice in these five verses, he uses words like show and saw. There was a seeing and not just a hearing. Show his servants what will soon take place. This is one of the frequently repeated phrases throughout the book of Revelation. And I saw. Compare that to the rest of the Bible that mostly says, hear the word. Hear what God is saying. But here it's show them what God is doing. And so this is why Sinclair Ferguson said this is a picture book of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Revelation is see the word, not primarily hear what I'm saying, but see what I am seeing. I'm trying to explain a picture to you with words. Third, he tells us in verse three that it is a prophecy. Now, most people think of prophecy as future telling, But most often, prophecy in the Bible is actually forth-telling. The difference being uh, not always, and the majority of the time, not telling you of events that are going to come to pass, but rather telling you how things are and what the results are going to be if they continue along that way. And so especially as you read the minor prophets, for example, you see a lot of forth-telling. So they're telling something true, not necessarily always something that is yet to come, although that certainly is a part of the prophetic word. Now, interestingly, 72% of the the book of Revelation is allusions to Old Testament passages. 278 of the 404 verses in Revelation contain references to the Old Testament. There are... Uh, in Paul's letters, uh, 200 allusions to the Old Testament. So you compare that. We have one book of the Bible that has more allusions to the Old Testament than all 13 of Paul's letters combined. Interestingly, uh, Interestingly, though, there are no direct quotes of the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. So, that would suggest to us that this book is an integrated whole. There's a a conscious continuation with the Old Testament prophetic books. 
And so recognizing Revelation's nearly constant use of the Old Testament allusions is a key to our understanding the meaning of this revelation. We can't really understand the book of Revelation if we're not familiar with the Old Testament because they work together to bring about the final point. I think a lot of people approach the book and maybe don't know much or anything at all about the Old Testament, and so they miss these allusions because it's not John coming out and saying uh, it says in Ezekiel or it says in Daniel. We don't have that. It's just assumed that you're familiar with those books. It would have been very familiar to the readers of the first century, and, uh, and so if you miss those, you miss one of the key ways of understanding how to interpret the text. However, Here we see why John calls this a prophecy in addition to a revelation and a vision. Verse 1, again, it says, the things that must soon take place. And in verse 3, it says, for the time is near. Now, again, it's important to remember, who was John writing to? That's always an important question as you're reading your Bible. Who is the audience? Now, of course, we understand that all Scripture is useful for the church, and there's much to be gleaned for us today, but there was an original audience, and that was not first and foremost us. Yes, it's for the church. Yes, it's the inspired Word of God. We must seek to understand it and believe it, but the primary audience of this revelation was not you and me but Christians living at the time that he wrote and sent this letter. So it should seem odd that we would conclude that John is writing to people saying soon and near, and when he writes soon and near, what he really means is 2,000 or 3,000 years later. We have to understand the language as it is presented to us. And so this is a prophecy. Fourthly, he shows us that this is a letter. This is a letter. It's full of blessing to churches in Asia Minor uh, from John describing what Jesus wants the church to know. He shows us that in verse 3. Again, I've mentioned already, it is a letter of warning and a letter of encouragement. Notice in verse 4, it says, to the seven churches. And uh, over the last several months, we finished last month looking at the church, uh, the letters to the churches in Revelation uh, during our Lord's Supper services. Uh, these are the seven churches, the ones he wrote to that the book of Revelation is written to, to these seven churches in Asia Minor. So this is what the book is. So altogether, Revelation is a symbolic presentation of the conflict between God and the spiritual forces of evil as it plays out during the history of God's redemption from the time of Jesus' incarnation, when he came uh, to establish his kingdom, to the final consummation when Christ returns and establishes the new heavens and the new earth. That is what the millennium is. It's what it's being referred to and Obviously, something, if you're familiar at all with the literature, is heavily debated. But it is the time we're living in now. We call it the church age, the time from Jesus' birth to the time of Jesus' return. Now, 
in verse 1, the English translation that says made known or signified, if you're using the New King James Version, the word signified is there. It's actually a Greek word that typically means to symbolize, to signify, or to communicate by symbols. So we can expect to find the truth taught in symbolic or figurative communication. So many, if not most of the things that are about to unfold are not to be taken and understood literally. So there's language about lions and lambs and beasts and even uh, strange women. We don't read this in the same sense, again, that we would read something like a narrative or a letter uh, in Paul's sense. Rather, they refer to another reality or set of realities. So we will see divine communication by symbolic vision. And so as we read and interpret Revelation, we should do so symbolically unless we're forced to interpret it literally. There is literal meaning underlying the symbols, absolutely. Think again of the sports team. The symbol, the players are not literally dolphins or literally lions, but they are a symbol that is representing a literal reality, the team. So it may be either physical or a spiritual reality, but it's a mistake to bypass the visionary and symbolic and go straight to a literal interpretation. Now John's use of symbols is similar to Jesus' use of parables. It's rooted in uh, the language and the signs of the Old Testament prophets. Like Jesus' parables, the symbols of Revelation use very powerful and often shocking imagery to open the eyes of true believers who are living um, in a, a difficult time. It's also used to shock those who are uh, unbelievers. Now, Jesus' point with his parables, you remember, he said uh, that he, he spoke of these things in such a way to, uh, to harden unbelievers and deepen uh, their darkness when they reject him. And so Revelation can be thought of in much the same way. But again, because it is rooted in the Old Testament, the key to interpreting the symbols is to go back to the Old Testament and to see how they were being used by the prophets. How did the prophets understand and utilize these symbols? Again, John's point is not to confuse us and leave us with a puzzle to be solved. But the original audience would have been very familiar with the Old Testament and the meaning of these symbols far more than most of us. Again, we've looked recently at the letters to the churches, so I'm not going to address those in the first few chapters of Revelation other than to say that the seven churches uh, that are listed there are all in various states of either um, faithfulness or uh, degradation, and the Lord Jesus has a word to each of them. But This was the primary audience. So from there, you get into the bulk of the book of Revelation, chapters 4 through 21. And through these chapters, we have multiple visions that are being revealed. These are the chapters that conjure up all sorts of different interpretations that people have. But maybe a few thoughts here will be helpful for us as we seek to read the book on our own. So the visions of chapters 4 through 21 are about the present 
And when I say present, I mean when the letter was written, not just the future. And the present being also the church age, the time we're living in, the millennium, and not just uh, sort of after Jesus' return. And the purpose is to speak both warning and encouragement, as we've said, for believers to persevere in the commitment to Christ and to divorce themselves from any allegiance to the world and its systems. There's a view of Revelation that is called a futurist view that sees more of Revelation being written to explain everything that is supposedly supposed to occur in a very short time uh, in history uh, before it all comes to an end and Jesus delivers his final judgment. But again, it's important to remember that prophecy is not primarily about future telling, but foretelling. And John was writing these things to explain what would soon take place. And so the visions of Revelation were not uh, of just some far off future after or right when Christ is about to return, in which case they would not have, this really wouldn't have had much relevance at all to those seven churches to whom John was writing. They were undergoing persecution. They were undergoing temptations to compromise their, their witness and their testimony to Christ. They were, they were tempted to idolatry. In the midst of this, the writer of Hebrews tells us there were people being persecuted in ways that we can't even fathom, some even being sawn in half. And so it doesn't seem to uh, make much sense that we would conclude that if John was writing a letter to encourage these Christians who were undergoing this kind of persecution, that his uh, his end conclusion would be, I need to write to them about something that's going to happen thousands of years down the road. That's really going to encourage them. That's really going to help them. No, he's writing to them in their circumstances. And so instead, these visions explain in symbolic language what continues behind the scenes, as it were. At the time of John's writing, and all during this church age until Christ returns. So the main purpose of these visions is not to say, figure out all the details and try to decide what current events might sync up with that so you can predict the date and time in which Jesus will return. It's not like, you know, you see in the detective movies, they have the board with all the pictures and all the evidence, and there's lines drawn everywhere connecting this to that. That's not the point. That's not what we're called to do. But rather, all of this demonstrates that no matter how difficult and how, thing, how dark things might get to be, God is in sovereign control. And we see that all throughout the book of Revelation. That's what's being presented to us. Things are difficult. Things are trying. Things are challenging. But God is in control. And he's promising us all throughout this that he is going to bring it to the conclusion uh, that he has designed. And nothing will stand in his way. Nothing will thwart his plan. And so though they may suffer, though they may die physically, their spirits are secure in heaven. And in the future, they will be resurrected physically. And they will enjoy God's eternal presence in the new heavens and the new earth. Now, in the middle of all of that, there's a key section in chapter 12. 
And there we see the conflict of the serpent with the woman and her seed. Now, most of you, if not all of you, probably think very uh, quickly that this reminds you of something else in the Bible, right? If you think back to Genesis uh, chapter 3, where we have the first mention of the gospel in the Bible, the Proto-Evangelium. It's there where God is cursing the serpent, and he says, you will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. And so is speaking there of Christ, that Christ is ultimately going to defeat the serpent, the evil one. He's going to crush his head. And so it's uh, just from a literary perspective, if you think of the Bible as a whole and you see the interconnected way that it has been written and the references that are made back and forth, this is, uh, this is sort of the end calling back to the beginning, that now the seed of woman is coming to crush the head of the serpent. Uh, so it's, this, it's a beautiful picture, uh, but we see that all throughout that there is continuity of this entire story. And so this is, this is a key thing to understand. What is going on here? How is this encouraging the church? It's encouraging the church by reminding them what has been promised will come to pass. Jesus will be finally victorious over Satan, his minions, and sin and death. Okay, another key thing for us to keep in mind as we are reading through Revelation is what is called recapitulation. Now, this is one area where I think people mistakenly can get off track in reading through this book. Recapitulation means, that's a quite a word to say over and over. It means that when you work through the book, you shouldn't understand the visions that are being explained to be in chronological order. In other words, you're not reading the visions of this happened, and then that happened, and then this happened as though it's all on a timeline. It's not a timeline of events. Instead, the visions are presented as various series of judgment, and they have these parallel descriptions or recapitulations of the same event from a different perspective. And so uh, if you think about it like if you've ever... Uh, if you've ever walked up a spiral staircase and uh, you sort of look over the edge as you go up, you're looking down at the same thing. Maybe there's an object down there. But every sort of step you take up that spiral, as you look, you're seeing it from a different side, from a different angle, and you're getting higher and you're seeing different elements of it than when it was right there, right in front of you. And so that is more of what is going on as we read uh, these visions. We're getting different perspectives on the same thing. And so the events of the seven seal judgments don't occur first, and then the seven trumpets, and finally the seven bowls. No, all of these judgments occur throughout the church age, and they're parallel descriptions of the same events from different vantage points. And toward the end of each series of seven, there is a description of judgment followed by a depiction of salvation. And so the seven seals bring us to the point of final judgment. So does the seventh trumpet. So does the seventh bull. So each series brings us to the point of the final judgment 
but then John sees the next series to describe it from another angle. So whenever John says, after that, he's referring to the order in which he was shown these visions, not the order in which these events are taking place on a timeline. And within these visions, there also occur various interludes where the scene shifts and we move from sort of this physical idea to, again, behind the scenes where we are brought into uh, the heavenly perspective. So let me give you an example of recapitulation. We have the same battle being portrayed in Revelation 16, 14, 19, 19, and 20, verse 8. So let's read it. For, uh, chapter 16, verse 14. It says, For they are demonic spirits, performing signs, who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Okay? Chapter 19, verse 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And then again, chapter 20, beginning at the end of verse 7. Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. So all three of these are a recapitulation of the others. They're explaining the same thing with different, uh, different kinds of language. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Ezekiel, you'll know that chapters 38 and 39 of Ezekiel, there's a prophecy of this great battle where God is to send his people into Gog in the land of Magog to destroy his enemies. So now what we see in Revelation is that battle is now universalized. In other words, what was prophesied about Israel is now referencing all the saints of God, the church throughout the earth. And as you read prophecy, a a key point of interpretation is that prophecy in the Bible moves from the lesser to the greater. In other words, the earlier prophecy is later expanded. And so this is a good example of that. It would be reverting back to the older prophecy that was intended as sort of a type or a picture of something greater to come if we were to read this and try to identify what nations Gog and Magog are going to be in the future. So here's the point. Gog and Magog are not any current or future geographical entity. It's not Russia or China or North Korea. It's an allusion to the Old Testament to say that the judgment promised by God against Gog is now to be universalized against all the enemies of God from all the four corners of the earth. It's gone from lesser to greater. It's expanded. And so from that, we can see that Revelation is teaching us that God's judgments will continue to recur throughout the millennium, throughout the church age. Yes, during the millennium, which we are living in, Satan is bound to some degree so that he cannot deceive the nations from accepting the gospel or uh, deceive the nations into assembling into this final battle against God's forces. After the millennium, Satan is released, deceives the nations, in other words, Gog and Magog, to assemble them for the final 
battle. And then the beast from the sea, the beast from the land, the harlot, all these things we read about uh, in Revelation, all of these are symbolic portrayals of evil spiritual forces. They have various manifestations throughout the history of the church. So it's a futile effort, I believe, to try to identify any of this with particular historical or present or even future places or people. As John said in 1 John 2.18, you have heard the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. That's what's going on. We're getting a description now of all of these Antichrist forces at work. (coughs) Armageddon, likewise, is symbolic, not to be identified with any geographical location. The final battle in which Satan and his evil forces will be defeated is not to be imagined as a battle fought with weapons. The battle is spiritual. Christ defeats them with the sword coming from his mouth. In other words, his word. And the weapons of his followers are the words of their testimony, which they uphold despite their suffering and persecution and even martyrdom. So when we read in the latter days in the Bible, which is now picked up in Revelation, and when we read John writing that this will soon take place and, and they take place after this in Revelation 1.19, all of this refers to the church age, the entire millennium the time of the inauguration of Christ's kingdom to the final judgment. I think a faulty understanding of not just revelation, but eschatology as a whole is why Christians are often discouraged by the decay and the rot that they see in the world around them. But it's because they believe that this tribulation is sometime not yet to come and we're not living in that now and so it shouldn't be that bad. Now we're not there yet. Jesus is supposed to take me away before that happens but things are so terrible right now uh, so why is this going on? The reality is that the church age, the millennium, is the time of tribulation. It is the time uh, where we face these challenges. Revelation uh, is not telling us that there's this earthly millennial kingdom and then a temple will be rebuilt, the sacrificial system will be reinstated. No, Revelation tells us in 21-22, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. The temple was destroyed in 70 AD. Why? Because the church of Christ is the temple of Christ. The people of Christ are the temple of Christ. He no longer dwells amongst his people in a temple. He dwells in our hearts. He dwells in our midst as the church. And he reigns and rules from his throne in heaven, not on the earth. And so, as we're wrapping up here, about out of time, the New Testament teaches us particularly in the letters of Paul, but alluded to in Revelation, that the church is, and this is a key interpretive point, that we are the people of God. We are the true Israel. Remember, Paul says not all Israel is Israel, but all of true Israel will be saved. That's us, brothers and sisters, Jews and Gentiles. The wall of hostility has been broken down. We have been grafted in, and Abraham is our father. That means that we are the beneficiaries of the prophetic word of God. 
That's a significant message of the book of Revelation that cannot be missed. Where Israel failed, Christ succeeded as the true Israel, as the true son of David. And all who believe in him are in union with him and constitute the true Israel along with all of the Old Testament believers who trusted in the promises of God before the incarnation. And so Israel as a nation, the current land mass of Israel as a people, it has no future relation to the Abrahamic promises except that they as individuals would turn to Christ and become a part of the true church. In relation to our Christianity then, Christians and Revelation has nothing to say of this. We, we don't need to have any concern for a small strip of land in the Middle East. We need not be concerned about their political issues and conflicts in modern day Israel. It was a type of something greater. The promised land of the Israelites pointing to the new heavens and the new earth. The promised land that is promised to, God, uh, to God's people. It was a type. The land promises were to be fulfilled by the true Israel in the new heavens and the new earth. The new Jerusalem is not a literal place. It's a symbolic redeemed community which has been faithful to God even in the midst of trials and persecution. That is a great encouragement that God has given to his people and particularly those in the first century who were facing things far more significant than any of us have ever endured. So my re recommendation, go home this afternoon, read Revelation as it was intended. Read it as a letter. I doubt most of us get a letter in the mail and we sit down and we read a couple sentences and then put it down and come back to it a month later and read a couple more sentences. No, read it as a letter. Read it from beginning to end in one sitting. Let it all wash over you and be amazed at the immense realities that are beyond our physical senses and worship him who is in sovereign control of all things and see in the midst of it all that this is about the Lord Jesus Christ and his everlasting kingdom as he redeems his people from all the corners of the earth and brings us into that great heavenly celestial city of the new heavens and the new earth that will last forever and ever. That's all the time we have. So let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you so much for this great word. Thank you for not only the encouragement that comes to us from the book of Revelation, and not only the warnings that come to those who are tempted to waver and to fall away, but thank you most of all that this is a book that points us to our great Lord, our great King, our great Sovereign, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that you help us to come to your word in humility, trusting that what you have given us is not intended to confuse is not, in, is not intended to, uh, to bring us to a place where we are unsure of what to think or what to believe, but rather that is intended to encourage our hearts and to help us to walk all the more faithfully as we are being sanctified in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so help us, Lord, to understand your word with even greater clarity, to develop in us even greater hope in the truth that you have given to your people. And we pray you would do all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, 
as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.